The big difference was that we became more dedicated on the main course album to the roots of R&B. That's right. Where on the Mr. Natural album, it was still fairly white, and, and we just hadn't really... F we hadn't... We were just still getting used to each other and being back together again, and still didn't recognize the direction we should be taking. And it was a reap who spotted it immediately amongst the three of us that, we, that, that uh, throughout our careers, the R&B element kept creeping out in us, and why didn't we dedicate ourselves properly to it? And um, that's what we did. Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm still Stuart. Well, if Mr. Natural was the aperitif or starter, then it's time for a big slice of main course. Well, that's ruined my opening. <laughs> <laughs> I had exactly the same thing. Yours is a bit more sophisticated than mine. But yeah, it is. It's time to get the main course out, I think. Well, this is going to be a uh, um, bit of a different one, isn't it, I think, because we had the previous one where we were still lingering on old BGs and it was a transitional one. How do you feel about this one? This album and the next few albums we're going to be talking about in the mid to late 70s, so much has been said about them, so much has been documented about them, and most importantly, the BGs themselves have so much to say about them that I'm finding it difficult to try and find something different to say. Yeah. Whereas with To Whom It May Concern, Life in a Tin Can, Odessa, and the other albums we've already looked at, I felt as though there was quite a lot of room for extra discussion because those albums don't get spoken about. Whereas we're hitting albums now that everyone knows. Yeah. Anyone who's a casual Bee Gees fan knows at least 50% of the contents of these albums. Yeah, I mean, have they ever done Drive Talking Live? I don't think so. No, I no, don't think so. No, and I'd like to know how that song was written. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I see where you're coming from, because I think with the early stuff, particularly for you, it was a lot newer for you. By this point, I'd heard Horizontal, This Is Where I Came In, and now Main Course was the third. So I was really going for you know, the different ends of their mm. catalogue. So this was my first introduction to their mid-70s, quote-unquote, disco, R&B, Arif Mardin era. And I can say my thoughts now, I love this album. I think it's just wonderful from start to end. And I feel like this album to the Bee Gees is what an album like Band on the Run was to Paul McCartney. Yeah. If that makes sense. Or Sgt. Pepper to the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Or The Stranger to Billy Joel. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of definitive album that started a new era. It indicated a new change. And here we go. This is the brand new Bee Gees. And even just from a stylistic point of view, looking at the album cover, we've now got the typography, the font Bee Gees, which is that classic Bee Gees logo, which goes on to be used, I think, through to 1981. When did you first hear Main Course? I heard Children of the World first, so that would have been about 79. So I, I would think probably late 79, early 80. That's right, because the record shop I used to go to started importing a lot of vinyl from abroad and you could always sort of tell because it always had it and I think it's some come from the US as well because when they imported me I had like a, a nick taken at the top right hand corner I don't know why but every time you saw one of them and you opened it up you could see it was it was a foreign pressing this album was the first Bee Gees to receive an a lyric sheet really it took them that long yeah them 70s albums were, were gatefold, but there was nothing, not that I, I mean, the ones I've got, there's no lyrics to them. And definitely not in the 60s, they're tending not to be. I mean, I think probably the first albums to have lyrics on it is um, Sergeant Pepper. 
Yeah, I assumed that after Sgt. Pepper, it sort of became universal for most artists. Certainly not with the Bee Gees, and, it, and I don't think there was a lyric sheet with Children of the World. I could definitely do with one, because I've got loads of misheard lyrics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know whether there has ever been a definitive cover for main course because the amount of different shades of green i've seen on that album cover sometimes even slightly blue my original one is very green yeah whereas this one we're looking at from 2020 is dull isn't it far more on the blue color spectrum the shade of green i sort of most associate with it is the one that i then used for the background of the words bg's logo i thought i recognized it yeah i when i first heard it fantastic first side and i must admit Though I don't think it now. I remember at the time feeling a little bit disappointed with the B-side, with the B-side, with the second side of this. But, you know, I've come to appreciate it and it is up there with one of my favourite albums. But it just initially, I think, I think having heard Children of the World, then going back to this one, and then a few years later getting Mr Natural, it just took a while for me to get used to side two. And I wonder how many people that have got into the Bee Gees music are all via these compilations. I mean, there's a million of them to choose from. So I'm wondering why these albums tend to be more popular because obviously people go from it from the Saturday Night Fever era and they like them songs, so they then discover these late 70s albums and then if they really enjoy the music, that's when they expand either side of the 70s. Main Course was released in June 1975 in the US and in August in the UK. Mm. Was this a common thing for there to be delays well, sometimes there's a delay, but I did notice that with the single, Jive Talking, I think one's May, one's July or something. Yeah. Obviously, there's this thing going around that Jive Talking was sent out on a white label promo to the DJs. Whether that then got word of mouth, it was getting airplay, obviously, throughout Europe. And it, and it, and that one thing led to another and it became a huge success over there. Because I think it got to number five in the UK and number one in America, didn't it? Yeah. What was 1975 like for you? What were you listening to? What were you buying? Well, I wasn't really buying any singles, really. Same as the last two or three years, just taping stuff. But you were that age, then we're at school where people were buying vinyl and you were sort of swapping um, stuff. So that's when I, I first heard Band on the Run, Venus and Mars. I think I did buy an ABBA album, the one with SOS on it and Mamma Mia. I have a job distinguishing between 75 and 76 because stuff I might have heard in 75, but I'd probably then had to save my pocket money. I'm running my paper around to be able to afford it to buy it. So obviously I might have been a bit behind. Do you remember hearing the Bee Gees on the radio? Because you were at secondary school at the time. Was anyone else in your school listening to them? No, no. The people I was with, was it was, it was still like David Bowie. It was cool to go around with Led Zeppelin in your in your hand or... Black Sabbath, <laughs> uh, and obviously that's not the sort of music I was... Uh, so they were walking around that I didn't really want to walk around with my ABBA LP. So, <laughs> so I just, just declined to say I was buying anything at the time. So stuck to my little cassettes and stuff. But do you think that looking back now on the music culture in the UK or worldwide, do you think that Main Course is a fit for 1975? Oh, Definitely. Definitely, yeah. Whereas we've said before, I think we said that when you asked me things like, would dogs be a good single? I don't don't think it fitted. As what I've read and what was in the charts, and they, they, they think the Bee Gees were influenced by George McRae's Rock Your Boat, that sort of style of music. So, of course, when they went to Miami, I think this was in 
Arif's mind. And then Barry must have said, look, this is, we like this sort of style, whether it's average white band and people like that. So I think they went there with intentions to try something different. But I, going through the recording of this album, I think it wasn't until about four or five tracks down the line that they actually started getting into the groove, so to speak. Continuing on from the new segment that we added in the last episode, I'm going to run through the top 10 singles in the UK from June 1975. Yeah. So I'll give you the artist if you can give me the single. At number 10, we have Gladys Knight and the Pips. No idea. The Way We Were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Number nine, Wings. Was this Junior's Farm? No. Close, on the right line. Listen to what the man said. Yep, yeah. correct. Number eight, Johnny Nash. Tears on my pillow? Yep. Number seven, Stylistics. You make me feel brand new? Nope. No, I can't think. Sing, baby, sing. Ah. Oh. Number six, Osmonds. Proud one? Yep. Number five, Tammy Winnett. Stand by your man? Yep. Number four, Van McCoy. Do the hustle? Yep. Number three, Shawaddy Waddy. Hey, rock and roll? No. Mr. Rock and Roll? No. Don't I? Three Steps to Heaven. Oh. Number two, 10cc. I'm not in love? Yep. And number one, any guess on what it might be? Birmingham Rhapsody? No. No, it's Christmas, wasn't it? Is it male, female? It's a duo. No, I don't know. So the duo is Windsor Davis and Donna Stell. A Whispering Grass? Yep. There was a comedy programme called it Anarf Hot Mum. Uh-huh. And they used to sing songs in the programme. So right. it's, it's a song going back, I think, Whispering Grass, 1930s. What do you think of that top ten? Two are probably my all-time favourites. One's I'm Not In Love, 10cc. The other one being Listen To What The Man Said. If you knock them out of the park, the other one's left, I'll probably go with a hustle. So talking about the hustle, with the Bee Gees changing their sort of style even more to what's so-called disco. I thought we'd go through a couple of songs that I remember when I was at school that was at the school disco. See if you know any of these. listen to them being your age how do you think the music sounds then to dance to to what it does now i find that the sort of danceable music then had more of a song to it and a melody would you say yeah i if you go into any club today it's all about drum and bass it's all about the rhythm and melody lines i never think there is so much of that in not all modern music. I don't like to say that all modern music is the same because I, th- I think that no, it's m- definitely music not, today but... is just as good as it was 50 years ago. You just have to look in the right places for it. But the songs that were being played in discos and discotheques and clubs back in 75, 
I think had more melody to them than the songs that are being played in clubs yeah, today. Yeah, which leads me on to this period, which is disco, musical, or whatever you want to describe it. But it, they're all full of pure melody, aren't they? And listening to Barry White's I'll Do Anything For You, I could definitely hear the rhythm of that, how that would go on to influence a few of the Bee Gees songs, in, especially in 1977. Yeah, them four songs are good um, sort of pointers, aren't they? The Bee Gees produced some amazing disco songs. They're all floor fillers, aren't they? Yeah, fantastic. And there are other disco-style songs from the era that I, I really like. These four being good examples. And then things that are slightly in, more inspired, but in a looser way. Hall & Oates' proto-disco album with Ecstatic. Yeah. And then also things like Wings' Goodnight Tonight. Yeah. Abba Voulez-Vous. As we'll find out towards the end of the 70s, it did go a bit OTT with every person doing a... You have people like Johnny Mathis from the 50s going disco. So, yeah, it certainly turned everything round Saturday Night Fever. Recording for the main course took place primarily throughout January and February of 1975. And this was at Criteria Studios in Miami and also some undated sessions at Atlantic Studios in New York. So that really is nearly a year since they finished Mr Natural. Yeah. Because that was January and beginning of 74. But they were touring very heavily late 74. I'm going to go through a few quotations from the brothers and other people who were involved in the recording and production of Main Course. Morris says, We went into the studio determined to make a strong album. It was more important to us than touring. We tried to come up with a different sound, a more disco-sounding style, yet incorporating pop and rock. It seemed to work. Barry then refers to Eric Clapton as an influence on their decision to record in Miami. He says, We had a conversation with Eric about making a comeback. Eric said, I've just made this album called 461 Ocean Boulevard in Miami. Why don't you guys go to America and do the same and maybe the change of environment will do something for you? I think it was really good advice, says Barry. Morris then recalls that it was Robert Stigwood who recommended Miami as a recording location. Morris says... Stigwood showed us the picture on the cover of 461 Ocean Boulevard and said, you can rent that place and live there and record and get a suntan. Robin then says, we didn't sit down and decide to make any radical departures. Something happened one night. We booked Criteria Studios and went in there and it started happening. The change wasn't immediate, but as the group worked together, they became a more cohesive unit. Talking of Clapton's 461 Ocean Boulevard, are you familiar with that album? There's a couple of singles from it. I think it was I Shot the Sheriff. Yep. Um, I think was the first one. I think that and that's quite an old um, Bob Marley composition. But no, I've never really listened to the album, to be honest with you. So I know a few of his singles, but he's not, not an artist I, I've followed or really wanted to listen to. So, mm. But we do see him cross paths again with the Bee Gees. The Bunburys, yeah, he's involved with I think, that. I think he does. He does a vocal on one of the tracks. The personnel on main course: producer and arranger Arif Mardin, engineer Carl Richardson at Criteria, and Lou Hahn at Atlantic. On piano, keyboard and synthesizer, Blue Weaver. On guitar, Alan Kendall. Drums, Dennis Bryan. 
Saxophone, Joe Farrell. Percussion, Ray Barreto. Harmonica, Donnie Brooks. And then on horns, we have the Bonero horns. This is a US brass sextet who were prolific session musicians. They would go on to appear on a lot of Gib albums, such as Children of the World, Shadow Dancing, Spirits Having Flown, How Old Are You, Heartbreaker, and Eyes That See in the Dark. Oh, I didn't realise they appeared on that many. And then Gene Orloff is the orchestral concert master. So it was Dennis Bryan who suggested the inclusion of Blue Weaver. Weaver says, When I joined, I think it was the lowest ebb that the three brothers had been. I'd actually heard Mr Natural as well, and I thought that was great, and there were elements in that that I obviously felt we could take further. So it seems that for the first few days of recording, they try out a few different songs which don't make the album cut, some of them we still haven't heard today. And these are songs such as Was It All In Vain, Your Love Will Save The World. And doing some research on this album, I could see a few different people who were at the studio at the time saying why they felt that this wasn't quite the right direction. Linda Gibb says the Bee Gees and the band were in the studio putting some tracks down. Dick Ashby and Tom Kennedy and I were the onlookers and we were looking at each other and thinking, this isn't what's happening now. They've got to write something more up-tempo. Stigwood says, when they started the second album with a reef, I didn't like a lot of the tracks. I flew down to Miami and told them I wanted to scrap a lot of the things they'd done and I'd like them to start again. I would swallow the costs, not to worry, but to really open their ears and find out in contemporary terms what is going on. Mardin then elaborates on this, saying, When the Bee Gees arrived in Miami, we started to record, and some of the songs were still in their old ballad style. But the Bee Gees were listening to a lot of American groups, especially R&B groups, and since my background is R&B, I was well suited to the affair. Robin then goes on to talk about working with Mardin, saying, He drew out what we loved the most. He said, Don't hide what you love. Don't try and do the things you think people will love. Do what you love. And stay true to yourself. And the rest will take care of itself. And he was right. And then Barry says, When we wrote the album, we were listening to a lot of radio. The main vein at the moment is soul, R&B, disco. So we moved into that area. There's so much of this kind of music going on around us, and we want to do it, but we want to do it better if we can. We're into music now that is better than anything we've ever done. Therefore, it's our main course. It also means we're on the right track. The four tracks that they recorded was Was It In Vain? They also did Country Lanes, which they did keep, Wind Of Change, but... I've read that Wind of Change was originally a ballad. It goes into what you quite rightly say, that they decided then to re- to scrap it and redo it. But obviously they must have liked the melody and the structure of the song and up the tempo on it. And the other track we've got is Your Love Will Save the World. Was It All In Vain was recorded on the 6th of January. And Blue Weaver says, I always remember the first line, because in the house where we were staying, in 461 Ocean Boulevard, the dining table... Above it was a chandelier, and I think Barry must have got the opening lyric. He must have been sitting there, looked up, and the first line was, As I gaze into the chandelier, or my chandelier, or something, which I think a day or two later I read and changed it to, As I gaze into my can of beer. I haven't got a copy of it. The Bee Gees will think it wasn't important because it wasn't worthy. 
It was important to me though, because it was my introduction to the Bee Gees. We were quite lucky that up to quite recently, Your Love Will Save the World, we did we did know of via the version by Percy Sledge. Yeah. He covered a track from, um, was it Kick in the Head? A Lonely Violin. Yeah, that's it. But quite recently, there's the, well, I, I don't know whether it is a demo or a sort of part recorded version has come out, hasn't it? For a leftover song, this is really strong. As I mentioned a little while ago about side two, I would quite happily see this replace a couple of songs that are on there. On this one, we're still getting a Robin vocal and we're still getting a Barry vocal. If you lost one of the, one of the other ones, it, it wouldn't be a major issue to me. It deserves to be heard again. Yeah. On this one, though, Barry's vocal is very raw and Robin's is very emotive I'm in two minds with Your Love Will Save the World. When I'm listening to it, I love it. I think it's a a superb ballad for all of the reasons that you said. For Barry and Robin's lead vocal, this is a Barry and Robin composition. I think this is just a wonderful song. I was so happy to be able to hear that Bee Gees demo of it. But I do have to agree with what Linda was saying and probably what Stig would heard in this song, in that I don't think it suits main course but I could have happily had this on Mr. Natural or I could have had this revisited for Living Eyes. Yeah, that's what I thought if I've got Danny. It would suit Living Eyes perfectly. I think this is a beautiful song. I I absolutely love it. Maybe it could have been on side two of Main Course because I don't think it's a particularly long album. It flows by very quickly. So you could have put it onto side two or even somewhere on side one. This does sit for me as one of my favourite, if not my favourite, leftover Bee Gees song. Mm. Between now and 79, we've not been so lucky to get all these extra tracks that we were getting in the early 70s. Is that because the ratio of songs recorded to songs put on an album was greater, so it meant that they were having less leftovers? Yeah, I don't really know. They spent more time in the studio working on one song as opposed to a lot of different ones, or does it mean that there are a lot of songs were written individually and they brought them to the studio. It's the impression that I have looking at a year like 1970, where we have about 100, 110 Gibb compositions, where they would maybe get through six a day and they would just pick one. Whereas now we're getting maybe three or four songs a day, but they would each be worked on more and more. 
mm. and developed. On Gibbs songs through 75, Was It In Vain and Your Love Will Save The World are the only two songs that have not been released. When did you first hear Percy Sledge's version? And did you know it was a main course left over? That was only through uh, Gibbs songs. I was going through that and obviously I was crossing off what I had and that one I hadn't got crossed off. And then I, I don't know, I must have been cross-referencing it with a um, with internet. One thing leads to another and, and um, I found then that it was covered by Percy Sledge. I have heard it, but I didn't give the song much time before you uncovered or you sent to me the Bee Gees demo of it. Yeah, I think um, that Percy's singing in a very much a Robin Gibbs style. I think so. Sorry for any Percy Sledge fans out there, but it's not a voice I'm I go to. Now I've heard the Bee Gees version. Anything else pales in comparison. Absolutely. Whereas, whereas before that, you know, you you'd take whatever you could get. They also covered Only One Woman, which I think Blue requested him to do. So whether it was sort of a, a jam session, he just he just wanted to hear it, see what it sounded like. But I think we spoke about it when we were doing the Odessa podcast. I think it was around about November 74 that the Elton John band covered this song as well. You've got Nigel Olsen doing a Phil Collins, so he's on drums and on vocals. You've even got Elton John himself on piano. Now this one... Did quite well, actually. It got to number, well, probably better than some Bee Gees songs. It got to number 58 in the UK and number one in, in the US. Even with this other version, I just don't think I like this composition. I did. I wasn't keen on it with Odessa, with the Marbles, and Nigel Olsen's version. I, it's a bit more orchestral, but I'm still not taken by it. Still would love to hear Barry sing it. Yeah, that's, I think that, that could make the difference, hearing Barry do it. And if it, if it sounds like... In his natural voice. Like your love will save the world, definitely, I really want to hear it. Yes, I do. But I think what's so important about hearing... And being able to hear the Bee Gees demo of Your Love Will Save the World is that this gives us a good indication of why they changed their style. What was happening at the beginning of the sessions for main course? Why did they have to change? We can hear this and we can start to understand why Linda and Stig were were pushing the Bee Gees to change their style and go a bit more up-tempo. I think it's a really important document of that early period in 1975 for the Bee Gees to be able to hear this and, and now understand why they decided to slightly change with that in mind, then shall we go into the first track?
Nights on Broadway was released as the second single from Main Course in September 1975. The B-side was Edge of the Universe. Nights on Broadway is a BRM composition and it was recorded across the 20th and the 30th of January. And what I have to say straight away, this is the best opener to any Bee Gees album. You said it with Charade, I'll say it with this. I've given this a 10. This is one of my all-time favourite Bee Gees songs. It always has been. It's what first attracted me to main course. I love it. Well, I'll shut up now then, shall I? (laughs) That's virtually what I've put up. Wow, what a start to an album. It's fantastic that we're getting an upbeat song. The first time for I don't know when. Um, Definitely not in the 70s. Maybe Bee Gees sing and play with I Was a Lover Leader of Men (laughs) might be the last time. So that was 10 years before. Yeah. I can't remember. We've discussed another podcast, haven't we? The um, They start slow and, and, and build the way, in, even on Mr Natural. If the Bee Gees weren't pushed to go in a different direction, whether they could have opened this album with Your Love Will Save the World? Could have done, couldn't they? The original title of this song was called All the Lights on Broadway. All the Lights on Broadway. That's a good album title. It is, isn't it? All the Lights on Broadway. It fits if you sing it in your head. Yeah. I've got to say, this is a fantastic song. I think the harmonies are superb. I mean, even the lyrics, I've got straight away the opening lyrics. Here we are in a room full of strangers. So it gets you in. Yeah, here's a group who are in a room, who are are in a a musical landscape with strangers trying to prove themselves. and, And they're saying, statement of intent, here we are, listen to us, this is us, the new Bee Gees. We even get a slower bridge in this one. And maybe one of the best bridges in popular music history. Which you could say is reminiscent of the old Bee Gees. But I think in context of this song, it still stands fresh and new. It's wonderful. do get a bit of falsetto on this one don't we in the chorus isn't this one often quoted as being the song yeah where barry discovered it when he was screaming at the end in the in the coda yeah i think it's just towards the end isn't it because on this song you get barry and robin in their natural vocals you say it's probably a 10 out of 10 i i, I think the vocals alone between barry and robin are probably some of the best up to then probably the best they put down on record He was looking for, for one of us to scream in tune, if possible, at the end of um, Nights on Broadway. We didn't have any of those ad-libs, what you call scats or ad-libbing on the song. And he said, you know, um, can one of you do that? And I said, well, I had done some falsetto in the past as part of harmonies. I said, so I'll go out and give it a shot and try. So I went out to the microphone and started doing this. Found out that I could sing in falsetto and had no knowledge about it my whole life until this point. And Arif said, that's really good. Can you, can you actually do it with words instead of just screaming, you know? So I tried and I found that I could do it with words. 
listening to this song, there's one thing that I didn't really notice was the difference of speed. Um, I have read reports that some versions were slower and faster, but I'll just read what Joseph said. And it go, he goes on to say that Nights on Broadway was edited for radio by removing the slow section, just to bring in a more acceptable length of 2 minutes 52. It was also speeded up, or was it? The version on Tales from the Brother Gibb is also faster than the album and fades a little later, despite a 4 minute 25 running time. Is that the right speed, he goes on to say. If so, then Nights on Broadway was slowed down for the album, presumably to make Jive Talking sound faster by contrast. So I think what that basically means is you're getting a slower version on main course. Yeah. The single version and the correct speed is on, ta- on the, must be on the box set the Towers Brothers Gib. I haven't noticed. I'll do side by side and see if you can hear it. Having quite a few albums and episodes in which we look at quotations from Robin talking about the material, and he seems pretty disparaging, such as the Australian music and I think Life in a Tin Can and Mr. Natural, he pretty much has the same thoughts as us when looking at Nights on Broadway. He says, This is one of my all-time Bee Gees favourites. This song holds a special place for a variety of factors. One, the start of a long-lasting relationship with producer Arif Mardin. The second, that it enabled the Bee Gees to get back to their R&B soul roots, which in the previous years we had neglected. And thirdly, I think that it was just a well-constructed record and song. If I may say so, one to be proud. Yes, Robin. Yes. You may say so. It is one to be proud of. Definitely. Looking ahead at the other tracks on the album, I've given this a 10 out of 10 and said how it's one of my favourite Bee Gees songs. I think it's proof of how good this album is that there are other songs coming up that will challenge that. Yes, I've got a couple, but I don't think you can challenge a 10 out of 10. No. In Record Mirror, in their 4th of October 1975 issue, the reviewer gives Nights on Broadway a thumbs up, saying, This may not be as good a dance record as Jive Talkin', but there's much more to it, and I like it very much better. The opening is underpinned by good, punchy rhythms, which are soon joined by a thin strand of strings, and then around the halfway mark, the whole thing gives way to a delightful, lyrical passage, I think that's the bridge, before reverting to the opening and building to a climax. But as you said about Sherrard in the last episode, where you would put it on any of your compilations, for me it'd be Nights on Broadway. As a compilation, it's always quite a good start with this one. Yeah, it works so well. And the live version from Here at Last, I think, packs even more of a punch. It's really good, isn't it? When that opens up, wow. I mean, I thought the studio version was powerful, but that one, I think, to have been there in the crowd. And I do like the 89 version as well.
Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. They're both fantastic versions, aren't they? It took me by surprise, actually, on, on this one. It's, that it's actually Morris that sings the falsetto live. Now that you've said that and re-listening to it, it, it's really clear that it is Morris. And it makes sense that it would be, because Barry's still sustaining the last note. So it has to be Morris that does the falsetto there. And it goes back to Morris's great ability to mimic and imitate and go between Robin and Barry. Yeah. How did Nights on Broadway perform in the charts? Well, as a follow-up to Jive Talking, in the US, it got to number seven. It got to number 17 in Germany. And surprise, surprise, it didn't even chart in the UK. Really? No. That is surprising. It didn't after a number five hit. But then two years later, in, in June 77, I remember when I was leaving school, it was covered by Candy Staten. She took it all the way to number six. I think her version is different. In fact, I think it feels a bit more disco-y. Yeah. To keep the rhythm going, they've, they've taken out the bridge. Listening to it, the backing of Staten's version reminds me a lot of the Bee Gees song, You Stepped Into My Life. Yeah. A bit more funk, electric piano, Fender Rhodes sound to it. And yeah, I couldn't quite imagine the bridge working in that way, despite it being my favourite part of the song. I suppose she couldn't believe her luck, could she, that uh, it... it it was a non-charting hit in the UK. You can't really say that she jumped on the Saturday night bandwagon because it was about three or four months before How Deep Is Your Love come out. Yeah, that's true. This was side two to her single Young Hearts Run Free. Oh, OK. And that, I remember that one as yeah, well. Yeah, and that, that's... Wow, A-side, B-side is phenomenal. But it does prove that the Bee Gees, from the first track on this album, this album where they want to set out and be inspired and go for the R&B approach, to then have two years later... Candy Staten covering it and giving it that funk soul flavour. It must have been so gratifying for the Bee Gees that they that's it. People are covering their work and in the genre that they were inspired by. We're getting now to, to um, Barry, anything he touched turned to gold. And you'll see there's a couple more hits coming up as well. So, in fact, it might have been one of the first cover versions to do so well in the UK. So after their big night on Broadway, the Bee Gees get in a car, cross a bridge and head towards the sounds of Jive Talking. Jive Talking is a BRM composition and it was recorded on the 30th of January. It was released as the first single from Main Course in May in the US and July in the UK. And you can see why it was picked. 
Well, Record Mirror, who had been so positive in their reviews for Life in a Tin Can and Mr. Natural and the singles from those albums, are very disparaging of Jive Talking, and they give it a thumbs down. And they write in their 24th of May 1975 issue, It's years since the Bee Gees practised what they are best at, which is a shame because their early hits still sound as good today as when they first appeared. Jive Talking is a weedy attempt to make a fashionably laid-back funky record and it's as cliched as my description of it. The song's pathetic and it could be anyone singing it. Does anyone still share my fast, waning faith that the Bee Gees will one day return to their senses? But they weren't producing ballads and they weren't hits. Exactly. Is it in retrospect? They, were just, they, they moved with the times. They, they had nowhere to go, really, did they? You know, after Mr. Natural bombed, the only thing they could do was to go and do something totally different. I don't know if this is the same reviewer who then writes notes for Nights on Broadway, which I read out from Record Mirror, because if it is, then they soon change their mind and decide that Nights on Broadway is far better. Well, I'll get a slightly different review in Cashbox. They placed it fourth in Picks of the Week for, this was May the 10th, 1975. Sporting a new funky sound, the Bee Gees have revitalised themselves and have come up with a single that will probably be their biggest hit since I've got to get a message to you. Credit to Arif Mardin for the resilient production and the Brothers Gibb for taking a chance in straying from their proven formula to come up with a contemporary sound. This is a hit and that's no jive talking. <laughs> Good review. Record World put jive talking on page one of its May the 10th issue. The reviewer writes, The Brothers Gibb might soon spell the name as Bee Gees, with a big B and a big G and little S. If this funkifying of their talents, a la average white band who call themselves AWB, is any indication. Delightful departure from, from their time-tested sweet sound is no jive at all. And the good boogie word should be out and spread fast. Giving his thoughts for Jive Talking from the Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set, Barry says, Working with Arif immediately comes to mind. To be a great producer, you should listen to the best and study the best. And I believe that as good as I may become, I shall still be a student of Arif. It's a shame that he wasn't able to work with them for the follow-up album. I'll save my thoughts for our episode on Children of the World, but I think that suffers as a consequence. Yeah. You said at the beginning of this podcast that it's difficult to judge because you've heard it so many times. Do you enjoy it as much as you did when you first heard it? Yeah, I do. I do find that when I'm listening to Main Course, I might sometimes skip Jive Talking, not because I don't like the song, purely because of oversaturation, but equally because I feel like if I skip it this time, it means that the next time I listen to Main Course and I listen to Jive Talking, I can enjoy it just that little bit more because I've saved it. You know, I've, I've not exposed myself to it too much. It's one of those songs that it's it's so good, but it always kind of takes me out of the album because I've heard it so many times. But saying that, this is undeniably one of the best grooves and keyboard riffs. I think the chorus is just irresistible. It's infectious. And there's absolutely no way this couldn't have been a hit. Yeah, it goes, what I always keep on about is the intros. And again, you've got this scratch guitar yeah. at the beginning. And straight away, you know what it's going to lead into. It sits in that same tier for me as songs like You Win Again and Tragedy, 
where immediately they've got something to them. They've got a certain sprinkling of magic that means that there's just no way that they could fail. Yeah, I love the song. It's not my favourite on the album, but I, I do, like you, I enjoy it. It does suffer a bit with overkill because I'm talking probably in the 90s or whenever the Bee Gees were on TV and all they did anything, I think it was Keppel Road, probably in the 90s. They did... Uh, there was a there was a program an audience with the Bee Gees. Yeah, and you just knew they'd do some songs. You just knew that somewhere on the line we, we're going to get Jive talking. So it was always what they're going to sing apart from Jive talking and or to love somebody. Yeah. So I think it it just registered. I think so much with them that they went with this one as the first single. It became, in fact, I I think their first worldwide hit since Run To Me. So we're talking three years. I mean, in today's terms, that's that's one album, isn't it? But here we're talking three albums. Chris, do you think, despite this song being so well known, there's not that many cover versions that I'm aware of? And the only one I can think of was a version, I think, called Boogie Box High, which in the late 80s. And again, I think it was a Stock Aiken and Waterman song. And they sort of did a late 80s version of it. And it's one of those songs I think was rumoured to be sung by George Michael. So I haven't gone into it anymore, so I don't know whether it was proved that he did sing on it or didn't. Sort of does. It sounds something from... He could have sang on, on Faith. Did it get much airplay? Oh, yeah did quite well I think I think it got in the top 10 there was just like a cartoon video for it or an animation there was so you never knew who this was whether it was a studio band but it was rumours at the time as I say that um, people thought it was George Michael yeah though it does sound slightly higher than what he range than what he would normally see and Joe Talking is one of those songs where the verse I think is equally as commercial as the chorus. If you look at the structure of the song in terms of seeing it on paper with verse and chorus, they're both as good as the other. And it has that rare combination of lyrics and melody, which equally carry the song. And I, I, I feel like you could look at either the verse or the chorus in isolation. And either way, you've, you've got the perfect pop song distilled in both. And the fact that they're together and they're coupled to one of the best grooves that you could get. Is it Morris playing the bass line on that, do you think? Yeah, it must be. It's so punchy and it's so well placed in the mix. I get the impression that this is probably what they wanted with the likes of Heavy Breathing. Whereas Heavy Breathing, they went quite far in the rock, quote-unquote rock direction. Whereas here, they've still taken the same idea, but they've gone more in the funk, soul, R&B direction. Yeah, but it would be quite interesting to get a, a, a more funky version of, of Heavy Breathing. And equally... I would love to hear a take one demo of Jive Talking. I'm guessing it was just them in acoustic guitar. Oh, I was just in the guitar, and it was that scratchy guitar, and they was going across the bridge. It was the start of it. It's the same with the Reef Mardin when we did Jive Talking, which was basically, we were talking about the rock and roll jive. The, you know, the jive, the dance. And he said, no, I've got to tell you, he said, uh, it's a black expression for bullshitting. I'm doing his accent because he's a Turkish chap and he, he has this great accent. He goes, no, no, it's a, it's a black expression for bullshitting somebody. And we had jive talking, you tell, uh, you dance with your eyes. And we changed it to jive talking, you're telling me lies. Jive talking. 
we went to a wedding recently and I can't remember which Bee Gees record come on, but instantly everybody got on the on the dance floor yeah. and was dancing. And even at work a few months ago, and, and I was walking um, and past one of the rooms and they were listening to, I think it was BBC Radio 6, and they played Jive Talking. Uh, and I could see in there the people that, even though they were working, they weren't really listening to the radio, I could see their feet tapping. Yeah. And I had to restrain myself from going in and saying, oh, by the way, this song was recorded on this date and, it, and this was the B-side and this is who singing lead vocal. I had, no, I'll just let them enjoy the music because that's what matters. Yeah, or wait till April when the podcast comes out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's dated, would you? Not at all, no. With Saturday Night Fever coming out, it's collected these songs as well. Especially when you listen to CD3 on Tales of the Brother Gibb. It feels like one big album. What score have you given to Jive Talking? I've gone with a nine. I've gone with an eight. Well, with that in mind, shall we go on to track number three, Wind of Change? Change is a Barry and Robin composition recorded across the 8th and the 10th of January. This is the first instance where I can really, really hear the American sound. I know that it's all over Nights on Broadway and it's all over Jive Talking, but personally, it's Wind of Change. Whenever I hear this song, I can imagine one of two things. I can either picture John Travolta walking down the sidewalk, or I'm thinking of a scene from the film City of God set in a Brazilian nightclub I think it's around 75, 76 and there's all these people in this club and they're listening to Carl Douglas's Kung Fu fighting oh yeah, yeah, I remember it well and the imagery of that scene in that film I always put in my head to Wind of Change you could swap Kung Fu fighting for Wind of Change in that scene and you would still get the same it would put across the same message so that's what Wind of Change always reminds me of it's it's a very it's a very mid-70s sounding record but not in a way that's dated no with third track in and i think this could have been the third single it's so good that to have this one as a third single you you start the album up so strong well i'm looking at main course as an album at the track listing and if this was 1985 then you could probably have the first six songs from this album as singles well michael jackson did with thriller yeah i mean i think nearly every track was a single i can't remember offhand but which ones weren't but nearly everyone was a was a single but yeah i think this is this is fantastic the alternating vocals between barry and robin on the chorus is so good and i've put down here that it, it's got a really good groove helped by a great morris bass line well with that squelchy bass funky riff and all those references to american culture it does have that instant danceable quality to it but i've put here that we get barry's breathy breathy vocals on this 
And I wonder if that goes back to the original, where it was originally a ballad, and that was the way he was probably singing it. Yeah. Even though it was up-tempo, he just still decided to keep the original style of his voice because it was at a lot faster pace. Then obviously he was able to go that step further with his vocals. I'd love to hear Take One of This as the demo. I'm trying to hear it in my head. Wind of Change is a ballad. Part of it's I can imagine being a ballad, but other parts, I think because we are so familiar with it in its final product, it's difficult to hear it as being any other way. This wasn't a single, but it appeared on a single. It was the B-side to Jive Talking. Do you? Th- I think that, personally, I think that makes a really, really strong A and B-side. Yeah. I mean, the radio stations could have flipped it over, couldn't they? But it could have been double A-side. Yeah. And they probably would have found they had more of a danceable record. And as you said about that infamous story with the test pressing or the early pressings of Jive Talking with the white label so that DJs wouldn't be prejudiced about it being the Bee Gees, I wonder if that also had wind of change on the b-side and if they played it would that have been instantly recognizable as the bgs yeah i don't know whether whether sometimes they've just put out a one-sided acetate Two main live outings for Wind of Change was from the Here at Last 75-76 tour and then from the 79 Spirits Having Flown tour. Both are fantastic, the versions that we have available. Oh, I think so. They're both driving versions of this song. I think that the 79 one sounds a bit fuller. Yeah. The one on Here at Last, there are points in the chorus when Robin takes over that it sounds a little bit... I don't know, something's not quite working. Well, that's funny Chris, on my notes here, I've got, this so suits Barry. But I feel in 76, Robin feels a bit out of his comfort zone. But by 79, it's like they've ironed out the creases and he just sounds fantastic. Fits him a lot better. So this one, Chris, I'm going to give, same as Jive Talking, a nine. I'm going to go for the nine as well. So after Wind of Change, we go into track number four, which is Songbird. Go on with your songbird. You can go wrong, bird. You will go on and on, bird, like you did before. This is a Barry, Robin and Morris composition, but it also is credited to Weaver. Yes, I've read that it was Blue Weaver. He was messing, been messing around this melody for a few years. And while he was on the piano, Barry started singing along with him. Going purely on listening to it and then being familiar with the 1980 album Sunrise that Jimmy Ruffin did with Robin, 
I've always thought of Songbird as being a bit more of a Robin composition, which is why I was surprised to see that it, it was a four-way credit. Being Songbird and Robin, you, you're going to... Uh... <laughs> That's true, yeah. But this is beautiful. I think it's a gorgeous melody. As I've said, thinking that it was a Robin composition, it is a shame my only criticism on the song is that I would like to have heard more of Robin's vocals on here. Yeah, because we get two Robin vocals in a row on side two. You could have swapped them over. But like you, I think it's got a gorgeous melody. We talked about dogs in the um, previous episode where people were saying it sounded like Elton John. I can imagine Elton John doing this one. More than dogs, personally. Someone Saved My Life Tonight, which we just mentioned in the charts at the time. It could quite easily be him. Another thing I do like is we mentioned sort of instruments on Life in a Tin Can. Here you get the harmonica. With what I said on Charade about the clarinet being a good match for Barry's vocals because it's a reed instrument and it's quite breathy, I think the harmonica, again, because it's it works well for the breathy vocal that Barry's doing. It's it's such a natural fit in the same way that it was on Living in Chicago. I think yeah. that's when it appeared yeah. last. I have read that it was by somebody called Donnie Brooks and it was recorded in New York. Yeah, like you, I I could quite easily imagine Robin singing this piano ballad. Easy. As you quite rightly says, it it fits well in with this album. Even though we have got touches of the old Bee Gees, like I said, with Nights on Broadway. But the, the way it's done, it just feels something fresh. And by the last two minutes of Songbird, the Bee Gees, to my ears, they've entered completely new territory. It's that indescribable place where the melody is so emotive and magical... And the lyrics and vocals give so much power. I find it difficult not to be affected when I'm listening to this song by that closing section. It takes you somewhere else. I am surprised that this one never saw any live performance. Not even as part of a small medley, maybe in the late 90s, in the middle of New York mining disaster and to love somebody to put this there. For this one, I'm going with uh, probably an eight, seven or eight. I've given it a nine. Oh no, I'll go with an eight. This then takes us onto the last track on side one, Fanny Be Tender With My Love, which is a BRM composition.
far as I'm concerned, the Bee Gees could have retired after releasing this song because they will have achieved what I consider to be one of the greatest songs of all time. I've got here, it's my favourite on the album, if not top three. The very first time I heard the album, this was the track that I was drawn to in the same way that I was with Sherrard. It's sort of music that I that draws me in. You know, How Deep Is Your Love and that sort of stuff. It's just quintessential Bee Gees. And again, like you said on Songbird, I don't think it's ever been done live either. And I'm guessing that the vocal delivery, it is a tough performance. It's a complex yeah, song to And to do. try and reproduce it on stage. You look at the opening 10 seconds with the falsetto harmony from Barry, and that tells the listener everything they need to know about the song. The emotion of the song is captured there and then, and what follows is three and a half to four minutes of the greatest music ever committed to tape. And also on this song, I like the way they use the falsetto, and I don't think it's overused either. This song demonstrates that the falsetto is more than just a fad or a one-trick wonder. We've heard it on Nights on Broadway with its debut, and maybe on a couple of other songs in previous albums, and we've started to hear it more and more on side one. But I think with Fanny B. Tender, with this song, Barry is just proving that this is a real force of nature that he's been gifted with, and he can just use it. And what I do like with Main Course is that he only uses the falsetto at certain points when he needs to convey the emotion. As much as I love some of the later Bee Gees work, I do find with albums like Spirits and then some of Barry's demos from the 80s where I think the falsetto isn't necessary. I would rather you just sing in your natural chest or head voice. Whereas on Main Course, it's the perfect balance of only hearing the falsetto at certain times. You go on about the falsetto, but I know what you're referring to, but if you think of them albums in the 80s and the demos you've got Barbara's Guilty Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick obviously female so he's singing in falsetto but I think on the Kenny demos there's quite a few on his ordinary voice isn't there Hold me Hold me Seems like we never According to Morris, Quincy Jones called this song one of his favourite R&B songs of all time. No surprise. Yeah. And Blue goes on to say that his playing on this track was a conscious echo of Hall & Oates' She's Gone. I can see that. Yeah. With the B tender and then the way that it changes key is very similar to when Daryl Hall is saying she's gone and then it changes key again. Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set, Morris says, Without a doubt, one of the best R&B songs we ever wrote. I love Arif Mardin's production and his understanding from three brothers who love R&B. This one's for you, Arif. Well, this is another song title that I said was a bit dubious. I don't quite know where they got the name Fanny from. 
Because I remember when we was at school, we always used, in the lyrics, we used to swap the word tender and fanny, swap them round. So make of that what you will. Barry did talk about the inspiration for the song title. It was from Billboard in 2001, and he says, We had a house cleaner named Fanny when we stayed at 461 Ocean Boulevard. We were sitting in the lounge at Criteria Studios, writing the song with the lyric idea, Be tender with my love. Morris turned round and saw Fanny and said, Wouldn't it be a better song if it was a woman's name in there, and you're asking her to be tender? The connotations it's probably got in the US to the UK... I'm just wondering whether, because of that, it's it's led to less radio plays in the UK. And uh, we don't need to go into the connotations of it. That's why we used to swap the lyrics around. (laughs) Yeah. Well, talking about lyrics, this is an album that is full of my misheard lyrics. And as we get through the later 70s, I'm going to give to you each of my misheard lyrics from the songs. I always heard this one as, So you say to yourself, boy, you're out of your bed. When actually the lyric is, so you say to yourself, boy, you're out of your brain. And then again on Jive Talking, leaving me looking like a dumb, struck fool, which I always heard as leaving me looking like a dump truck fool. It proves that the melodies are so good, it doesn't matter what the lyrics are, whether it's tender or fanny, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it, make, it, make, it makes no difference because everything else about the song is yeah. so beautiful. I will say that it is, it does make the song title stand out. You know, it's not some boring title that somebody's just going to ignore. You know, someone's giving you a single with that written on the front of it. Oh, I wonder what this is. Chris, I've been on the Steve Hoffman website. There's a member there called F. Suttle. And he's been putting in quite a few articles and he's given me quite a bit of information that he's able to hear some demos, songs that I've never heard of, which we'll, we'll come upon. He's put in here, it seems that I've fallen into a pattern of listening to new Bee Gees outtakes offered by my mysterious source every two or three weeks. And I'm happy to report that I did get to hear a few new, uncirculated rarities over the weekend. First was an alternate version of the classic main course ballad, Fanny, which, in my opinion, is one of the greatest Bee Gees singles, and quite possibly my favourite of all time. This version of Fanny actually sounded like the same take as the official released version, with a few important differences. First, this was a band-only mix, with no horns or strings overdubbed, The difference wasn't too obvious, though, since the orchestrations on the the official version apparently closely followed Blue Weaver's synthesizer parts. But it does give you a good idea of what the song would have sounded like in concert had the band ever played it live. It sounds fantastic this way, so I'm not really sure why they didn't go with this. The most interesting variations occur at the beginning, which starts at approximately 15 seconds of the drums and Barry's acoustic guitar getting into sync before the full band joins in at the point where we are all familiar with. He's put it very cool to hear. But what really caught my ear was the alternate lyrics to the opening verse. While the release version opens with first I rise then I fall, the outtake begins with the more I rise the more I fall. 
Barry definitely went in after the song was close to completion and re-recorded the opening verse to the one we to we know. Not a massive difference, but definitely of interest to the hardcore fans. So lucky him. Hearing how subtle those differences are from the from the version that he heard to then the complete version, I would think that, that those are takes just before completion. Because not much difference, is there, from first I rise to the more I rise, the more I fall. I received an email from Lisa Wiles, who listens to the podcast, and she says, I have become pretty good at picking out Robin's voice, even in harmonies and even when he's blending with Barry. Morris can be a little trickier because he can sound a bit like Barry, but I don't hear either Robin or Morris in Fanny Be Tender, and it is my understanding that they didn't do this song live. I've read and heard somewhere that this is because the layering of the song is so complicated, and I sometimes wonder if it's 100% Barry vocal just layered and layered. And when I first read Lisa's email, I was a bit taken because I'd always felt like subconsciously I could hear Morris and Robin in the song. So then I went back and re-listened to it, and I can see where she's coming from. It does actually just sound like it's entirely Barry, but I can still kind of, I don't know if I'm just making it up, but I feel like I can hear Morris and Robin on harmonies. Oh, okay. The only bit I can possibly detect, Robin, that part where he goes, you know how easy it is to break it. Yeah, same for me. That's that's the part that I always felt, I thought that was him harmonising. So yes, I can see where Lisa's coming from. But, um, I mean, that just proves how fantastic they were in the studio, wasn't it? Of blending all the voices together. But going back to what she mentioned about live as well, I did read a passage uh, on the internet where Morris goes on to say that they really loved this song, but it was just a bit of a bitch to sing. <laughs> and for them to say that, yeah. it must have been. This was released as the third single from Main Course in January of 1976. In the 17th of January issue, Record Mirror says, Despite a lot of airplay... Nights on Broadway didn't figure in the charts. This one, from the album Main Course, should fare a little better. Not quite as sombre and more melodic. And they gave it a thumbs up. Well, I wouldn't class Nights on Broadway as sombre, would you? Yeah, Record Mirror are here, there and everywhere with their reviews on this album. Yeah, looking at the chart positions, it got just outside the top 10 in the US at number 12. It didn't chart like uh, Nights on Broadway in the UK. And in Germany, it took a dip and got to 42. Sometimes the third single, that's indication. A lot of people have got it on the album. And unless the B-side had anything else to offer, wouldn't rush out and buy it. So my scores on this one, I'm like the first track, I'm going for a 10. Same with me as a 10. I did say with Mr Natural that that was my favourite A-side of a Bee Gees album, certainly up until that point. Main course does give it a run for its money. And I, I know that I've given each song eights, nines, tens, but I would still say that the side A for, for Mr. Natural is still up there. So put the two A sides together and you've got one, one album, haven't one fantastic album. Yeah. So we turn the uh, album over and the first track we've got is All This Making Love.
This is a Barry and Robin composition, and it's such a harsh and punchy opener to side two, and I think exactly what's needed after the luscious ballad that closed side one. It has the same effect really as Dogs on Mr Natural. Yeah. It works really well. It's something like Dogs that is not like anything else on the album. It's got quite a choppy rhythm. As you say, it's quite a thumping piano. And with that in mind, and, and the era, I'm a big fan of Gilbert O'Sullivan, and it does remind me of his number one single, Get Down. And actually, that album cover always reminds me of Main Course. Oh, yes, because that's, that's green as well, isn't it? Oh, well, I'm a writer, not a fighter. Yeah. Along with um, the comparison with Gilbert O'Sullivan, there's also another song, Chris. I don't know if you have a group called Supertramp. Yeah. And I had this actually for my 18th birthday, and it was Breakfast in America. The title track, I've got a feeling they must have been listening to this as well, because it's very, very similar. Stompy. Yeah, I, I, definitely, I can definitely hear a similarity between the two. It's the way that every other beat is accentuated. So it's the dun Dun. That's dun, it. Dun, That's dun. it. Yeah, I see that. Don't you look at my I do believe as well, this was one of the first tracks where the Bee Gees used a click track. So this was done, I think, if the band played live to make sure everybody was in time. Well, this is a song where tempo is everything. As we said about the stompy Breakfast in America beat to it, you'd have to really keep time with this one. Yeah, make sure the arrangements and, and everything that goes with it stayed in time. With Robin in 69 using the rhythm box. That's it, the rhythm on, box. Saved by the Bell, Mother and Jack. It's not a million miles away from then using a, a click track. This is a Barry and Robin song that's like no other that we've ever heard, as you've said. And I find on here that the two of them sound like they're competing with each other. And it's like two voices of a consciousness sort of arguing we get call and response between yeah, the two of yeah. them and they're both trading alternating with each other it, it really is a Barry and Robin composition it stands out in a way like a sore thumb totally different to anything else but this is this is the Bee Gees isn't it they do like to throw in a couple of quirky numbers which this is yeah this is the quirkiest on the album this is also the shortest song on the album by about 20 seconds it runs in at three minutes and three seconds which is the longest, by the way? Actually, really surprising. I wouldn't have guessed this one. Edge of the Universe, 5 minutes 21. Mind you, I think about three minutes of that is the outro. Yeah. I have also read on the internet where a few people seem to think this could have been the fourth single. I think it's got commerciality to it. I think this is one of those albums where you can pick almost any song in isolation. Mm. Works for a single, and all this making love is no exception. It could have made some sort of statement on the radio airwaves. Are they not going down the falsetto route? It could possibly be done. Because I think this one, we get a, 
would you say Aurora Barry vocal? Yeah, I feel like if they hadn't discovered the falsetto and they'd pursued more of the heavy breathing Mr. Natural style, it would have been more songs like All This Making Love, which I don't dislike that idea. If anything, I almost feel like Children of the World and Spirits Having Flown lack this kind of music. Because I think one thing that this song where it does work is, as I say, I think you get the Rora Barry vocal, but then it's soothed by Robbins. That yeah. part, I'm really fine, which I think is melodic. And then you also get Alan Kendall's fine guitar work on this as well. And when you look through the lyrics of all this making love, it's quite a comical song. But also, is this one of the most sexually promiscuous BG songs? I'll read out some of the some of the lines. I can make it to the top, but then I gotta stop. But I'm all right. I'm really fine. It's just the wine and all this making love. In a day or so. It'll really show. Gonna wear me to the ground. It's just the way it goes. She keeps me on my toes. But I'm all right, and I should mind. It's just the wine, and all this making love. (laughs) And then a line that did make me laugh. I can't keep still. I'm gonna make a will, because I'm losing all my hair. I wonder who might have added that line. I've given it a six. I've gone with a seven. But as you say, it's like a palate cleanser. Yeah. Starting side two off. So with that, then we'll go on to track number two, which is Country Lanes. So warm is my morning sun. Red is my Soft is the cool summer breeze When I saw your face I saw the light in your eyes So dark and demanding Like a light in a star This is my lost gem on main course. I tend to forget about this song. And before revisiting Main Course for this episode, I'd not listened to the album maybe in about two or three years. And so this one had kind of slipped my mind. But when it came back on, I suddenly remembered it and forgotten how good and how much I enjoy it. This is a nod back to early Bee Gees, isn't it? I think it's got one of Robin's best vocals on it. But as I say, it's a nod back to the past, but it still fits in snugly on, on here. Would you agree with me that side two is the variety side of the album? Yeah. Probably don't like this quite as much as you do. And I, I just, for me, just, this is where I, I said I first heard the album. I find it dipped a little bit. Yeah. And then, then picks up. And that's why I'm thinking by either this one or the next one, I could quite easily swapped with um, the unreleased track. So I like it, but I don't love it. As you said, this one is harkening back to older stuff and I could see this one being on Life in a Tin Can and if it was to be on there, it would be a bit slower, stripped back production, acoustic guitars, piano, a drier sounding record. And I think that this song hits that fine line. It could have become quite saccharine with a bit more of a mournful lyric or vocal performance from Robin, 
But it, here, with Arif Mardin and with the band, it's given a much more tasteful, fuller production with Barry on the backing vocals and then the strings and the keyboards lusciously layered to support the emotion in Robin's voice. I, I think that this is a song that's really helped by being on the record that it is. But I think this is kind of the last album for quite a few years where the Bee Gees are allowed to be a bit more eclectic. Yeah. There's a lot of variety on Children of the World, but it's it's all sort given of, a bit of a commercial stamp. Yeah. Whereas on main course, I still feel like this is the Bee Gees being the Bee Gees. Like when we cover Mr. Natural, there's also a vocal-only version of this as well, which is absolutely stunning, particularly the verse. I think that if there's anyone who wants to hear the power of Robin Gibb as a vocalist and they want to hear everything that he has to offer, just listen to this vocal-only version of Country Lanes because you get a range of everything. And you could so imagine him in the booth with his hand to his ear and booth on his own and just belts this one out. The soft sounds at the beginning, and then you get the, the warble. It's, it's wonderful. Whenever I cry, my friend, you're always away. And so I pretend, if I could live the dreams that I see, long live my love. Also, another thing I like on this as well, Chris, is the drummer, the way he uses the symbol to emphasise the word country and love. This is predominantly Robin on vocals. And as you said about the symbol coming in on the word country, that's also the point at which Barry comes in. It's almost like an echo walking down country, country lanes. To me, I'll go on to say that I think country lanes is probably the least known track on main course. And the most deserving, I think, of discovery. Whilst you said that people think that all this Making Love could have been a worthy fourth single, I would like to have seen how Country Lanes might have performed. Because I think it's got the same amount of commerciality to it as all this Making Love. It just goes on to say that it's a change direction. They were quite happy with Barry getting more and more um, into the falsetto. So my score for this one is going to be a six. And for me, a seven. We stay in a similar mood with a similar sounding song to my ears, and that's Come On Over. I prefer this one. I think it's got another great vocal delivery from Robin. Oh, my bad days came with one. 
what to do. Come on, baby, you as we have it, it's duetted between Barry and Robin, but I can hear this being a duet between Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Yeah, that's true. Well, I've put on my notes here, I can imagine Barry singing this on Cucumber Castle. Yeah, again, it's it's going back to that type of thing. It's got a sort of a country vibe to it. I mean, there is a good cover by Olivia Newton-John, and I think she got to about number 23 in the charts with it. So that was the first time I think I heard it. So it's quite interesting when you, and again, you you hear these things subconsciously, but you don't know who wrote it or anything. You just hear it on the radio. So when it when I come to play this album, it's quite a surprise. Oh, I know this one. This is another track that they did live on here at last. And it is a great performance, actually. The vocals are phenomenal. Yeah. They're so similar to the studio. The only thing I will say is the... I think the steel guitar it seems to be more prominent on the live version. I just think it's a faultless performance. It captures the sound that you and I have always been after, or always loved to hear with the Bee Gees, where it's just the three of them stripped back, harmonising. And that's what this live version of Come On Over is. And in its placement on here at last, it's track four, and it's between Edge of the Universe and Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And so, it, again, in that same track four way, in the same way as Songbird on Main Course, Voices on Mr. Natural, and now on here at last, it's what's needed between two really up-tempo songs, is to have a, a gentle and mellow Well, it ballad. makes the faster songs, as I said earlier on, the makes the faster songs sound faster. And then they do slow it down. It, it puts all the attention on, on that particular song. Exactly. But I'm pleased they did this live because they tended to sort of stick to the faster stuff. I think this is another one of those classic Barry and Robin compositions in the same way as Love Me from the next album. And it always seems to be the Barry and Robin compositions that are picked up or given to other artists. Come on over, Olivia Newton-John, Love Me, Yvonne Elliman, and then pretty much the entirety of the Guilty album. Mm. As a duo, as a songwriting duo, those two seem to work so well at just writing the best songs and the best songs for other people. It's a pleasant enough tune... Like the previous one, it doesn't really do much for me. But I think I'm spoiled by them five songs on the other side. This one, like the previous one, I'm going for a six. Same as you, six. And now onto the penultimate song on main course, Edge of the Universe.
I think this is where the side two really picks up again. Yeah. Excellent song. And it's good to really be able to hear the synthesizer work on this song. I think it's the best that it sounds on the album. Yeah. Again, there's great harmonies when you get the contrast between the verse and the chorus. The lyrics is about sci-fi. This song to me has always had a very much an ELO flavour to it. And I think that goes beyond just the mention of the universe and you know, ELO often has the imagery of space and space travel. Oh yeah, travel. yeah the blue. But I, I could imagine this being done by ELO. Again, it goes back to one of my misheard lyrics. So I always thought he was singing just a darkened night at the edge of the universe when actually it's just my dog and I at the edge of the universe. Oh, okay. And then, and they call me Sh- Shenandoah. Shenandoah, yeah. At the edge. And, and I was looking into what that means and... I think it's, it seems to be a name that they've created for this song because the closest thing I could find was the 1965 James Stewart film called Shenandoah, which is spelt differently to how this is written in the lyrics. Now, I've also been looking on the internet on this one. Somebody called Shad, and he goes on to say that Shenandoah is one of the oldest American folk tunes going all the way back to the fur traders who were travelling up and down the rivers. The original words and meaning have been lost, but one common theory is that it was sung by a fur trader who fell in love with a young Indian woman whose father's name was Shenandoah. Now, over the years, the song took on the form of a sea shanty and made its way all over the world. The theme of the song is that the singer is feeling the pull of his homeland, which he knows he may never, ever see again. Well, I think that actually suits the song perfectly. The idea of travellers... Travelling, and in this song, just my dog and I at the edge of the universe, going all the way to the end of the place. And then the lyric, now I look out on forever, and it must be nice down there. And they call me Shenandoah in the air. So do you think this one veers to more Robin lyrics? Because he was, he was into his all his sort of history and stuff, wasn't he? And- he is into the history, but it was Barry that was into the sci-fi. That's true, isn't it? Because he did Bark of the UFO in 67? Yeah, that was one of his hobbies. It might still be UFOs and sci-fi. Yeah, and then on his solo album as well. I Am Your Driver. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this one is that it was released in 1977, the live version. So I assume that was a promotional single for the live album. And it made sense to pick this one if it wasn't a single at the time of the album's release. Yeah, that's what we desperately need. We, we need, I don't know whether it exists or not, but we need a proper DVD release for this tour. I think there's a, um, on YouTube, there's a soundstage version isn't it that we've that we've watched but actual footage i don't know whether i suppose there's bootlegs i don't know from this 70 well, i suppose you'd class it the main course children of the world tour wouldn't you i don't think we'll ever get it but I, and i don't know if it's ever recorded but it would be nice to see them performing these songs not long after they would composed and been released The synthesizer is fantastic all over this one. And, and that outro, it's like being at the edge of the universe. It, it takes you to that weird 
almost sci-fi land. Yeah, there's a lot of fictitious imagery in this one, which I do like. The one thing that I'm maybe going to start to miss with these later 70s Bee Gees albums is the concept or story lyrics to the songs. I look back at my notes for Life in a Tin Can and I've got two pages worth of notes for Saw a New Morning. Yeah. Just trying to understand what the possible concept could be for that. And we don't really ever see that again with the Bee Gees writing and naturally they're developing. Sometimes I'm listening to these 70s, 80s records and they are simple but beautiful love ballads but I do sometimes wish that there was a little bit more to... Yeah, that's why I said to you, I don't quite know, is it is it sci-fi or... But I find this song quite, would you say, smooth, laid back. The chorus and verse work together well. Yeah, the whole production is smooth on this one. Yeah. I will say that Edge of the Universe has one of my favourite productions on the album. But I'm saying this on an album that is produced so brilliantly. But I'm a big fan of synthesizer and synthesizer sounds. And on, on a side that I think is a bit more mellow than side one, Edge of the Universe really packs a punch. I think it's the Chicago soundstage Uh version of this, which is excellent. Watching that, you can see who plays what and does everything. It's an excellent performance. Score-wise on this one, I'm going to go with an 8. And a 7. And now we come to the last track, Baby As You Turn Away. Here we have the greatest album closer to match the greatest album opener. This is in my top 10 BG songs. Yeah, I've got this as a standout track. Uh, I love the bass, the harmony on the chorus are superb. Now, this is a song I've put down here. I would love to hear an acapella version. Just, you know, just hear their voices blend seamlessly together. I just think it's pure magic. And the outro, have you noticed the outro as well? That does remind me at the end of Spirits having flown. And I like the way that you get you get the rising, the ever-rising Barry vocal drifting away, but then you've got the drums and the bass constantly cycling around and bringing it back down to earth. Like Home Again Rivers, I Started a Joke, My Lover's Prayer, How Deep Is Your Love, Too Much Heaven. This is one of those Bee Gees songs that just hits me in quite an indescribable way. Yeah, you can't, can you? I can't quite define what it is, but all of the emotion is carried in the melody, Barry's vocal, the delivery, the harmonies from Morris and Robin. It all just adds the beauty of it. You mentioned vocal. Is this the first time we hear Barry's falsetto at the beginning of a song? Yeah, it is. I love that first line. Here am I, one sad, lonely guy. Yeah. One shadow of the man that used to be. It's so in context with the song, isn't it? I just think Arif's is done wonders with this. I think I think the production is is top notch. It's got nice orchestration on it. But I'll put this more down as a mid tempo ballad. Really as 
this is one of the songs that's on my long list of tracks that where did they get this melody from it just suddenly comes doesn't it out of nowhere i mean you mentioned the lyrics earlier on i think it gets even better with that part and it's easier to say goodbye where it really builds up and then it lends itself into that fade out as well i just find this one hard to believe that it's 47 48 years old it's hard to believe, isn't it? You'd play this to somebody. They, nobody would say this is this is dated. No. I think that's the power of the 75 to 79 period of the Bee Gees, is that there's a reason why the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is still so popular. And it's what I said back in our episode on Mr. Natural with a certain guitar sound on Voices, and I made comparisons to... John Lennon's work during the mid-70s, which you listen back now and it sounds very mid-70s and it's dated in quite poor ways, but certainly not with main course and the album surrounding this. It sounds as fresh today as I'm sure it did way back in 75. If anything, it probably sounds better today than it did back then. I mean, mean, you you could say this, this could end Living Eyes. Yeah. This is where I come in. It could have ended that. It's fine. Again, like Songbird, I don't think this has ever seen a live performance. No. Again, that goes back to, is it is it just the complexity? Is it they think they've just got too many hits and by putting this out, it would, they'd have to drop something else? I think when, they, when they're obviously touring, there's only so many songs that they, can, they want to promote from a particular album. I think they're probably stuck to four or five songs. <laughs> Score-wise, I'm going to go with a 10 on this. 10 as well. So I think that clears up all of the songs related to main course. But during 75, there was also around about another seven songs that were listed. But these had nothing to do, I believe, with um, Robin or Barry. They were nearly all Morris. So we've got titles such as Dream Theme, Ain't Got No Money, Footloose and Fancy Free. I don't think it's anything to do with the Rod Stewart um, track better leave today and then there's a couple which could be adverts or something one's called mclean's jingle Mm -hmm. and rso so looking at um, joseph's web page he seems to think rso mclean's and probably better leave today could be from jingles yeah again we're not 100 percent sure she said she'd always been a dancer Well, after going through all those unreleased tracks, I think that just leaves us now with one more item. Back in 75 as well, there was a project um, going on, all to do with the Beatles. It was called All This and World War Two. It was sort of footage from World War Two and Hollywood movie clips depicting the war. And these were all accompanied by different people singing Beatles songs. So the Bee Gees went on to record around about five or six tracks. There is Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight. She Came In Through the Bathroom Window and Sunking. And then there are also another three that I haven't heard. They are She's Leaving Home, Lovely Rita and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. 
Now, I presume the reason they didn't use Lucy in the Sky was Diamonds because it was then sung by Elton John, who then went on to have a hit with it in 75. What do you think of the three Bee Gees covers that we do have? Well, it's quite strange, really, isn't it? Because do you remember going through all those Beatles covers 10 years earlier in 66? And I've got quite a similar thing again where I think I said at the time, didn't I, that I think the Bee Gees sound more like the Beatles when they're singing their own compositions that sound like the Beatles as opposed to when they cover. I find these quite bombastic and the, to me the priority seems to be the backing as opposed to the vocals, do you think? Because it's quite full on, isn't it? With Golden Slumbers in particular, the backing instrumental doesn't really sound much like the original from Abbey Road. It sounds more like a movie movie soundtrack of those films of, say, the 1950s, which Mm. this is trying to emulate. I think Barry does a good job of them. Yeah. And do you think that these set the Bee Gees in motion to then go on to do the Sgt Pepper film? Well, it certainly gave Robert Stigwood a good idea, didn't it? Now, I've got to think about these these three songs as well. As I just said a few seconds ago, they were recorded in end of 75. There's no date that I can find, but I was, obviously I assume it's after main course. I'm just wondering whether they released after or recorded after Jive Talking because up until early 75, the Bee Gees were, they weren't selling records. So why would they then be asked to sing three songs, possibly six, on an album? Or had somebody told them that, or had they, I don't know, had they realised that Jive Talk had been released and it was a hit, right, it's good to get them into the studio? And they're not singing in the same way as on main course, there's no falsetto. Oh no. These, this is full on chest voice, natural yeah. voice. There's the harmonies and everything on it. It's a strange obscurity or rarity from the mid-70s to get these Beatles songs. But obviously the project must have done quite well because had a few hits on there and then I think it was released again in 77 and it was titled The Songs of John Lennon and Paul McCartney performed by the world's greatest rock artists. Would you listen to them again or would you think it's just a bit of a curio? They're far more interesting and worth more of a listen than the Bee Gees covers of Beatles songs from 1966 because these are totally different arrangements. We're hearing a different type of vocal performance from Barry and Robin and Morris, even though they're sort of predominantly Barry on vocal. I wonder, do you think they were done to a backing track like 66? Yeah, I, th- I thought that listening to it. Mm. I don't think that whoever session musicians doing the backing track probably weren't in the same room at the same time as the no. Bee Gees. So Main Course was released in June 75 in the UK and in the US August 75. 
I've found here where some publicity materials showed an alternate sequence. So I'll go with this, see what you think. So they start with Nights on Broadway, then they go to Fanny Bitender, All This Making Love, Wind of Change and Finish with Songbird. Side two starts with Baby As You Turn Away, that leads into Jive Talking, Country Lanes, Come On Over and finishes with Edge of the Universe. I can see I some of it working. Side two doesn't quite land. I like it ending with Edge of the Universe, but it doesn't... I would go and jive talking, Edge of the Universe, Country Lanes, Come On Over, and Baby You Turn Away. Yeah. But that would put three quite slow ones together. But it's interesting, they've, they've still kept Country Lanes and Come On Over together. So chart-wise, I've got it reached number 14 in the US. No showing in the UK, despite having a number five hit. And number 29 in Germany. So it still didn't bring them to the heights of 60s. But the heights would be achieved later on in the decade. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm just looking at Joseph's notes and he goes to write and say, As popular as it was in the US, main course would be the Bee Gees' third best showing album in the charts. After Bee Gees' first and best of the Bee Gees. However, in absolute numbers, it sold more units in brackets LPs, than any Bee Gees album up to this date. More than Bee Gees first. It was less of a seller in Britain and Germany, which had once been their core market. At the end of May, beginning of June, the Bee Gees then start their tour, or the main course tour. Um, They did cover at least half of main course, so the songs that they do, I've got to get a message to you, Edge of the Universe, Come On Over, and then you've got Don't Want to Live Inside Myself, Words, Throw a Penny, Down the Road, a melody of New York Mining Disaster, Run to Me, Don't Forget to Remember Stroke Odessa, Stroke Holiday, I Can't See Nobody, which has been the sequel I assume into one another, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Jive Talking, Road to Alaska, to Love Somebody, Massachusetts, I Started a Joke, Nights on Broadway, Wind of Change, Lonely Days and Heavy Breathing. But I could not find a live version of Throw a Penny. So whether they did that just for a few dates at the beginning of the tour, yeah. and then it got dropped. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Having gone through the songs on main course, do you think this feels more like Mr. Natural or more like What's to Come with Children of the World as an album? I'm veering towards Mr. Natural, both Arif Martin albums. Nearly every track from Mr. Natural and every track you could throw up in the air and they'd drop down and you could put on two albums and they're pretty much similar. I mean, what's stopping Sherrard starting side two of this album? you probably do a different arrangement to Down the Road and Heavy Breathing. The rest of them you you could virtually leave, I think. As I said, you could swap dogs over quite easily. Yeah. Lost in Your Love would fit anywhere. What do you think? It's always been an album that's felt quite untouchable. It's always seemed like, well, there's been critics for everything from two years on through to 
Mr. Natural and those albums have kind of had a bit of a bad rep, so it feels like there's a lot to say about them, whereas Main Course has always been held up mm. in much higher esteem and higher regard by the brothers themselves and by critics and audiences since 1975. But going through the album, between us we've had three 10 out of 10 songs. Okay, Side 2 gets a little bit weaker, but overall I wouldn't say that this is a lot stronger than Mr. Natural. No, I wouldn't. But it is such a definitive album for the Bee Gees where I could really recommend this to anyone and say, across the 10 songs on main course, you are getting pure, unbridled Bee Gees magic. Because I think probably Mr. Natural is slightly more varied than this. You're getting a more consistent listen. But I don't think the heights of Mr. Natural match the heights of main course. Baby As You Turn Away, Fanny Be Tender and Nights on Broadway hit a certain level that Mr. Natural, even with its strongest moments, Charade, Give a Hand, the title track, Dogs, they're up there, but they don't quite hit that same peak. But overall, I, I think Mr. Natural is probably a bit more of a fluid listen. The songs blend into each other, and I feel like there's a more cohesive statement there. Whereas with Main Course, okay, they've got the involvement of the band now, it's good that they've got Blue Weaver involved, and they've got more personnel who would become mainstays throughout the rest of the decade and I can definitely hear the sounds of Saturday Night Fever evolving from here the falsetto the disco the... so do you think each song's like a little statement on its own then any one of these songs you can look at in its own context and think come on over is the template for Soft the sort country, of songs that Barry would be doing a lot of in the early 80s but it's quite interesting each album we get songs that they or one or two songs that they never ever venture to again you know your heavy breathing down the road. All this making love. And then all this making love on this one. But that could be influenced from what was in the charts at the time, you see, as well. In their 31st of May 1975 issue, Cashbox Review Main Course, saying, The Bee Gees have that kind of mellow vocal consciousness that can be paired with any musical backing and not lose any of its poise or appeal. Case in point being their latest, on RSO, main course. The music on the likes of Nights on Broadway, Jive Talking and Wind of Change runs from straight pop to just the slightest hint of funk, while the patented BG vocal togetherness reigns supreme. For the July 17th 1975 issue of Rolling Stone, Stephen Holden says, Main course the best-sounding Bee Gees album ever represents a last-ditch effort to re-establish the group's mass popularity in front of their upcoming US tour. My guess is that it should succeed, at least to some extent, due to Arif Mardin's spectacular production, which presents the Bee Gees in blackface on the album's four genuinely exciting cuts, and then Holden goes on to list these four cuts as Nights on Broadway, Fanny Be Tender, Jive Talking, and Wind of Change. Holden goes on to say that the rest of the album more or less reflects the Bee Gees of old. Songbird, Country Lanes, Come On Over, and Baby As You Turn Away sound characteristically sugary. Edge of the Universe is a slice of dumb psychedelia, and All This Making Love is a passable novelty. For all of their professionalism, the Bee Gees have never been anything but imitators. Their albums dependent on sound rather than substance. I disagree with that. In this respect, 
main course is no different from its predecessors. I don't know if you know much about Holden, but he's quite a notorious critic. It was shortly after the release of McCartney's album Tug of War that he he did a really, really positive review, which was a change for him. I think he was usually quite disparaging of McCartney. And that went on. I think that was part of the reason why Tug of War was so successful. So here he seems on and off with regards to main course. Some parts I agree with. Um, I agree with what he considers the highlights of the album. And I think you and I both agreed with him with regards to Come On Over and Songbird being like the Bee Gees of old. Yeah, oh, definitely. And then more recently, for All Music, reviewer Bruce Eder says, Main Course holds up as well as anything the group ever did. And with killer album cuts like Wind of Change and Edge of the Universe all over it, Main Course demands as much attention as any hits compilation by the group. And then we had some listener thoughts. Mark Austin emailed in saying, Main Course is the Bee Gees masterpiece album. Children of the World runs it as a close second. Almost every track on this album is well-known or an under-recognised classic. My favourites include Nights on Broadway, I love the bridge on this song where it slows down before speeding up into the main chorus, Country Lanes, which is Peak Robin, one of his finest vocals, seems very strange there in the US recording this distinctively English track. He then says of Come On Over that despite moving to a more R&B sound, the brothers could still knock out a country classic and provide the variety that was the hallmark of their success. And then of Edge of the Universe, that the intro is very similar to Jumbo, before emerging as a laid-back mid-tempo ballad. This album combines the classic sounds reminiscent of their earlier successes, with the likes of Country Lanes, Songbird, Come On Over, with their new, more commercial R&B sound, with Jive Talking, Wind of Change, Fanny Be Tender. If I could recommend only one album to anybody that wants an introduction to the Bee Gees, it would be Main Course. And then on Facebook, Patricia McElroy says, There are so many 9 to 10s out of 10 on this album. Fanny Be Tender is perfection. The layers of vocals are insane. Nights on Broadway is a favourite for Barry singing in natural voice. To be honest, I don't always love Robin's solo, but Country Lanes is just stunningly beautiful. And then, as per usual, we have the ratings to go through of what the listeners consider each song to be out of 10. Oh, well, after last time, I, I'm completely foxed on this. <laughs> yeah, you're still crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think was rated lowest? It's got to be a track off side two. Correct. So I'm either go- I'm going to go with the, one of the first three tracks, All This Making Love, Country Lanes, or Come On Over. It was All This Making Love with 7.6. And then, after that, Country Lanes, 7.8. Songbird, 8.1. Oh, that's a bit of a shame. Yeah, that surprised me. Come On Over, 8.2. Edge of the Universe, 8.4. And then no surprises here. In fourth place, Wind of Change, 8.9. Third place, Baby As You Turn Away, 9 out of 10. Joint second was Jive Talking and Fanny Be Tender, 9.4. Putting at number one with 9.5, Nights on Broadway. Yeah, I agree with the first one. Yeah, Nights on Broadway, Fanny Be Tender... If I go top three, Nights on Broadway, Fanny Pretender. Baby She Turned Away. Baby She Turned Away, yeah. Well, I think you'd have been very lucky to have been a Bee Gees fan in the mid-1970s. If you've had the starter of Mr Natural, you've then been treated to the main course. And in the following year, you get, well, you could call it the dessert. Oh yeah, Children of the World. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) which we'll be talking about in the next episode. 
Yep, looking forward to that one as well. We'll speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. One man, woman, in it. No, only one woman. Only. See, I've even written the wrong thing here. It's oh, one man, woman. <laughs> I think it's an Apple song, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> one man, woman. <laughs>